0: Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, and each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Catherine Youngblood, Research Engineer and Director of Citizen Science for Marine Debris Tracker at the University of Georgia with me. Hello, Catherine.
1: Hello. Happy to be here today.
0: Yeah. Um, so, we've worked together a long time, actually, and I'm so grateful for that. You started working with me in your first year at UGA. Uh, I was really excited when you came into my office and, and asked me if I had any projects that you could help with. Can you tell uh, tell us what really motivated you to approach me?
1: Yeah, when when I started my environmental engineering degree, I was really excited and inspired by the idea of being able to create change through systems, especially those at the intersection of human society and the natural world. And when I was a freshman, I was taking an intro to environmental engineering course where we were talking about some of those big topics, and you came and spoke to my class about your work on marine debris, plastic pollution, and waste management, and it seemed like this was a field that was really ripe for innovation, and I was really excited to get to work with you.
0: Yeah. um, I was really glad that I did that. I remember when they asked me and I was a a young professor juggling a lot, and that was sort of an add on. But definitely in terms of you approaching me and us being able to work together, that was certainly a win there. But you also worked for other professors, not just uh, for me and did all kinds of cool projects during your undergraduate career at UGA. How were you able to kind of balance classes plus all those different research projects with various professors?
1: Yeah, UGA has a really uh, supportive environment for undergraduate research, and it was something I was really excited about getting involved in. Um, I knew I loved research and science, so getting experience in that area was something that was important to me and something I prioritized in looking at my class load for a semester and what projects I could be involved in. Um, For me, it was also really key that I was able to find paid research roles as well as um, some funded undergraduate research fellowships. So I was able to work for professors doing research instead of having another part-time job. Um, And obviously the skills I developed as part of that work are still things that I use today in our research lab. So that investment definitely paid off.
0: Definitely true. I think, yeah, you working with lots of different professors, and especially the qualitative skills in qualitative research that you gained have been, you know, a tremendous addition to our group for sure. But I also know you've, you've worked outside of the university. You had a, a couple different experiences, both with industry and consulting. I'd, I'd love for you to talk about some of those too.
1: Yeah. So for engineering, it's it's really a degree in problem solving. So there are a lot of different areas you can take it, which was one of my favorite things about, about pursuing that degree. And I really wanted to kind of explore those different directions to figure out what was a good fit for me. So as an undergraduate, I did a lot of internships. I worked in environmental education at an outdoor education center. And I did an internship working on an environmental health and safety team in an aluminum manufacturing plant um, which is a really important role in a manufacturing facility, but it was very repetitive day-to-day work. You're checking the same systems and writing the same reports. Um, and so for my next job, I really wanted something with more variety and I found a summer co-op with an environmental consulting firm, which was work that I really enjoyed. Um, we worked on a lot of different projects and there was a good mix of field work and analysis work. And I actually took a job working there full-time after I graduated from UGA.
0: Right. But then you came back um, and I I was happy for that. So you you came back really for the opportunity to work with the National Geographic Society on the Sea to Source Plastics Expedition along the Ganges River in Indian Bangladesh. And and I was co-leading the science and and I needed team members and you jumped at, at this opportunity. Can you tell us more about why you were excited to do that work?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, going on a National Geographic expedition is a pretty once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so that was something that I couldn't pass up. I I talked to folks in my consulting firm and just kind of reached the decision that I needed to, to take that chance, and so I quit my consulting job and came back to UGA to be part of the expedition. Um, and the idea of the expedition was really to combine interdisciplinary science to look at plastic pollution in this holistic way. And that was really exciting to me. So, we had marine biologists looking at microplastics in the water and sediment and air. We had social scientists talking to people about how they use plastics and how it affects them. And then, our team, mostly of environmental engineers, was looking at input and leakage and infrastructure. So we started in the Bay of Bengal and traveled up the river uh, to the Himalayas. And we did that twice, once before the monsoon and once after. Um, It was a really incredible journey and incredible experience. And we've since been able to publish several scientific papers, including one that I had the opportunity to lead about the products and the litter that we surveyed along the river.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the, I mean, there's, there's lots of things to talk about with that expedition, but one of the things that was really great for me being a part of that was to have lots of early career scientists and, and many women involved in that. Um, it was the first women led expedition from, uh, the National Geographic Society and also having the in-country partners be able to, um, you know, lead efforts and continue on from where that ended. So, Let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about a bit of our our lives for a moment. You've had a lot of changes in your, in your personal life this past year. You're newlywed, you're you're now a homeowner. Um, These are pretty, some, some pretty big events that, that you've mentioned you've had to kind of uh, adjust your, your working style a bit maybe. Um, And I think you and I have some similar working styles. So can you talk a little bit about these exciting life moments and, and how you've adjusted to them?
1: It's been a a year of a lot of big changes, um, exciting things, but but definitely big changes. So my husband and I got married in May of last year, and then right after we bought a fixer upper house that was built in 1917. So that's been a, a big project. Um, we're doing a lot of the work ourselves. So it's really made me reprioritize how I spend my time and it's made time management more important than ever. I'm, I'm very used to being able to work at all hours of the day and night to meet deadlines. And I've had to really think about how to plan things differently to make sure I'm, I'm spending enough time with my family as well.
0: Yeah. My husband, we we had a long distance relationship for a while and, you know, it was very easy to compartmentalize seeing him and then, you know, not working at all the couple weekends a month or whatever we were able to do. And then just working, you know, almost nonstop the other time. So when we finally got married and, and moved in, there was definitely an adjustment to being around each other all the time as well as you know, not being able to work in a similar way. So um, and that's Mm -hmm. continued to work on that balance over time. So we've got a great episode today. We're going to be covering a range of topics. One report we reference provided information for those interested in investing in solutions to plastic pollution all along the value chain. Another report um, we'll reference talks about how plastics are an additional pollutant to an already stressed ocean and what global leaders might be able to do about that. And last, we'll touch on how upstream interventions like preventing waste generation in the first place can help avoid all kinds of issues downstream, especially not having to manage waste at all. People often ask me, "What's what's the best way to manage waste? And I say it's not to generate it in the first place. So no waste is the best waste. So we also have an episode in our catalog talking with local entrepreneurs about opening zero-waste stores and refilleries, so check out that episode as well. But in this episode, we're going to talk sort of more about communities and how they can utilize larger, you know, reuse systems citywide. Um, And joining us today is Ellie Moss. Uh, Through our questions, you'll get to know Ellie better, but... Ellie has her own consulting company and also started Perpetual, a nonprofit organization that partners with cities, reuse service providers, and other stakeholders to implement immersive reuse systems that eliminate single use disposables, starting with foodware. Ellie, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Hi. Catherine. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we met, um, I think it was about six years ago, when you and the team at Encourage Capital invited me to work on a project looking at investment opportunities to help address plastic pollution. This project was was sponsored by Vulcan, which was started by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And I have a lot of fond memories of working with you and others at Encourage on that project. It was consulting for me. So I, you know, I feel like we were talking in the evening a lot. Sometimes I was traveling, you know, with my family I remember one of our telephone writing sessions was when I was sitting on the edge of a tub in a bathroom at a hotel I was at with my family. But I thought the work was so interesting, right? It was different for me in that it it seemed to have a lot of potential for direct application. And I knew right away as we started working together that I would enjoy working with you. And and I'm I'm still, I'm really proud of that report. I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about your background and, and how you got to that same point in time where we were working together on that project. So we get some background from you. And then also, is there anything that stood out to you about that project too?
2: Um, I'm really proud of that report. People are still referencing it. It's still, I think, for the space around investment in plastic waste, I think it really still holds up as a as a great reference. I think it's interesting to reflecting back now on the last six years and looking back at the report, we were mindful of looking for solutions across the whole value chain. And we were, you know, I think trying to think broadly about all of the different things. But I think as the thinking at the time was so downstream focused, I think the report shows that it was written during that time, but I'm still proud of the work we did to really be broad in looking at solutions and thinking about reuse and thinking about design and consumer behavior and all of that. So, you know, that's all in there too. It was a great, opportunity, I think, to um, have that holistic perspective. Um, This, like so many sort of spaces within the world of sustainability, many people come to it from a particular place within the system, and I think, we We know we all recognize that these are system problems, right? And no individual piece of the system has the whole solution itself. Um, and that's true in plastic waste and pollution more than I think maybe any other aspect of this. Maybe that's not true. but I think um, it was such a great opportunity to bring together all these different perspectives into a holistic report that really looked at the whole landscape um, and the whole set of solutions mm-hmm. um, and And that continues to be relevant and necessary today.
0: right. And I think that was the first time that sort of that intervention framework that I was sort of developing was put into, was put on paper other than when I testified mm-hmm. to Congress. And, and I think mm-hmm. in that way, we did have that whole from production to, you know, last chance capture. And you actually developed that term.
1: Ellie, I've I've seen you on lots of Zoom calls over the last couple of years, but we just actually met in person a couple of months ago, and I really enjoyed getting to know you during our field work together, which we'll talk a bit more about later. Um, you've done a variety of work with a lot of different entities, have large collaborations and grown your consulting business. Could you talk about some of your projects across different groups and what it is you find rewarding about this kind of work? you know
2: i've I've been doing a lot of consulting for a long time, and it's a perfect kind of career choice for someone who is like a it's like addicted to learning. <laughs> I think it's really um, such a great opportunity to to learn so much so quickly. And a big part of how you learn or how how I learn is by talking to just tons of different people and having that engagement um, across different types of organizations, different kinds of people, you know, different parts of the world. So I've, I've really found that to be very energizing and just very um, educational. You know, I've, I've learned so much from from meeting different um, folks along the way and getting that full range of perspectives, which helps me inform my thinking then on a, on a lot of these different topics. Um, and I I also think it's great to be able to do a range of different kinds of projects. Um, and I, I think that's something that you, you know, sort of referenced as well as, you know, sort of field work or on the, on the ground engagement with folks has been really fun too. Cause I think one of the dangers of being a consultant is you do end up, you know, always kind of writing reports and delivering insights, but, but not actually getting to do the hands-on work. Um, so that's, that's something also that I've, uh, I'm, I'm glad you've had opportunities across the full spectrum.
0: Yeah. We love getting out in the field as well. It's a really important part to our work, I think, to see what's happening on the ground. I also love that you said addicted to learning. I love that. <laughs> um, I have a I have a little notebook that I bought, um, I don't know, it, many years ago, probably, maybe just right after my PhD or something. Anyway, it's a quote from Michelangelo. It says, I'm still learning. And I just, I, I have that up in my office.
1: Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. I think um continuing that that ongoing lifelong learning is is really powerful. my My grandpa used to tell me there's always someone who's smarter than you in in some area that you don't know about. And I think kind of getting to, you know, talk to different folks and and really be collaborative and kind of crowdsourcing that knowledge is really powerful, especially in an issue like plastic that's so you know widespread and affects everybody, and there's lots of different insights to be gained from from different perspectives
0: mm, yeah, so, you brought up or a lot of report writing ellie and and i'm going to talk about another report that we have done together but this report was commissioned by the high level panel for a sustainable ocean economy and the ocean panel is actually 17 world leaders that joined together for the mission of sustainably managing 100 percent of the ocean area under their national jurisdiction so Members include now our own President Biden. Um, The US was not a part of it when when we first started this work. And then presidents and prime ministers from Canada, France, Jamaica, Indonesia, Kenya, Mexico, and Norway, just to name a few. You and I worked together with 12 other co-authors that we brought um, together from every continent in the world except for Antarctica. Uh, And the report is entitled, Leveraging Multi-Target Strategies to Address Plastic Pollution in the Context of an Already Stressed Ocean. Pretty long title. There were some interesting findings in this report. I think what was really nice is that we could look at other pollution sources and, and the intersection of those with plastic pollution. So looking at things like improving wastewater treatment and, you know, agricultural runoff and, you know, improving drinking water infrastructure as a way to reduce plastic pollution. um, That was really interesting. And and I enjoyed that. And so I'm curious for you, what were you thinking in terms of that opportunity when when I invited you to join on that report? And is, is there anything that stands out to you? either about the results and or about that experience um, with this report?
2: I just really enjoyed looking at this problem from all the different angles that, that all give you a different sense of what solutions exist and what solutions are going to work best in different contexts. And so, you know, when we think about plastic pollution and we sort of draw the circle around this idea of plastic pollution, we can think about it on land, we can think about it in oceans, we can think about it in the air. Like there's, you know, there's sort of one lens of plastic pollution. The high level panel was all about ocean. And so while the plastic in the air and the land ends up in the ocean, eventually it did put a different um, frame around the problem. And it really put the frame around ocean health and, and the, you know, clean water and and, as you said, like being able to then connect those dots with, you know, okay, so plastic is being carried into the ocean through rivers and rainwater and, you know, flooding and things like that. And, you know, all the pollutants in the air are, well, you know, plastic in the air is settling into the ocean over time. But it, it, it then we opened the aperture a little bit and we said, well, what else is coming with the plastic as that's happening? Oh, you know, uh, sewage is a bit, you know, so it, it really, it changed the frame in such a way that, I think it really opened up a whole new set of strategies that I don't think we would have thought about in the same way without changing that focus. And so I, I think that's one of the things that's been really helpful over the past six years is continually finding different ways to ask the question about solutions in this space and asking the, the questions in different ways so that we continually get not different answers necessarily, but the emphasis shifts or you think about maybe a group of people that are impacted in a way that you didn't um, fully appreciate when you thought about it, you know, from the other angle, but it says a lot. And actually, I think it's a really key idea. Like the, the the title of the report shares the essential insight, I think, from this report, which is that we have the opportunity, if we're smart about it, to choose interventions that can accomplish many objectives at the same time. Um, plastic being one of them, but but also you know bringing a lot of other benefits like clean drinking water, like you know sewage management, wastewater management, things that are that are hugely problematic.
1: Our research group at UGA also worked with UALI on a project for the United Nations Environment Program Global Partnership for Marine Litter, or GPML. Um, And for that project, we produced issue briefs on topics related to plastic pollution, like mass balance, risk assessment, and life cycle assessments. And we conducted these workshops to engage members of the GPML in discussions on those topics. And you helped lead these workshops, sometimes at lots of really weird early times of the day so that others around the world could join. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about this work and how you helped facilitate these conversations? Yeah. So I loved this
2: work for all the reasons you just stated. I mean, I didn't love getting up at five in the morning, but I didn't mind it. You know, I think it was worth it to um, to do that. And I, I'm conscious that often, um, you know, we make other people around the world do that. You know, it's the people... Um, in India or Australia or China, who are you know talking on the phone at midnight? So I'm very happy to take my turn and you know be up in the middle of the night or whatever it is to to have these conversations so that it, we kind of share the share the the burden of lack of sleep. Um, but I I loved again sort of the collaboration, the range of different perspectives, and you know I think something that I really understood more deeply through the work of of these conversations was. You know, when you're on a call with—I don't know—we had, you know, I don't know, 200. I don't know how many people we had, but it was, you know, a significant number of people from all over the world, and they're asking questions about, you know, in my community, this is what's happening. How can I tackle this? You know, in my community, I'm having this experience, and it has definitely informed my thinking on what's reasonable for different types of solutions. Um, you know, how do we actually provide help to people in a way that's meaningful? Like, how do we support their work on the ground? Uh, what kind of resources can we provide? How can we help with data? How can we help with um, other types of of resources? So, so that was a really great aspect of that. And I, you know, I think I the first thing I wanted to be when I was young was a veterinarian. But the second thing I wanted to be was a facilitator. And so I, I definitely I love playing that role. Um, I love being in a position of making sure everyone is heard people jo- you know are joining these calls from from their cars from city buses from you know from where you know walking around like it i loved just getting a glimpse of people's daily lives around the world it just felt so human and it helped me feel more connected to to people doing the same work but you know all over the world
0: i love how you frame the facilitation and and listening and making sure voices are heard So, more recently, Ellie, you asked me to serve on the advisory board of your nonprofit called Perpetual. And I will just say that you had me at Reuse. From your perspective, can you tell us more about the Perpetual story?
2: Absolutely. Um, And that, yeah, that is my favorite thing to talk about right now. I want to start though by taking a step before Perpetual existed. The first time you and I have actually been on a peer-reviewed published academic paper um, together even though we've written a lot of reports together our first published you know journal article together was um and also with you know working with Catherine on that so the three of us are on there along with Mm -hmm. one of my collaborators at perpetual christina gherkin um but perpetual really emerged from a, a database that we created um called the living landscape of reusable solutions and you can see it at reuselandscape.org. So you, yeah, that's where you can go to see all the data that then led to the publication of the paper. But in doing the work of of creating that landscape, we we, we looked all over the world to understand to understand where reuse was happening. Um, we looked at nine different categories of reuse so thinking about reusable packaging reusable shipping mailers and sort of shipment packaging we looked at apps that help you find water fountains or apps that give you points for remembering to bring your reusable bags Um, and we looked at you know bottle uh, return systems where you know bottles are being collected and washed and used again and we looked at reusable cup and container programs for to-go food and drinks and delivery and things like that and so Doing that work, scouring the landscape for um, information about what is happening today to really get our arms around Well, it feels like a lot is happening, you know, anecdotally, you sort of we started hearing a lot about Oh, have you heard about this program? Have you heard about that program, um, but we wanted to to actually create that comprehensive view and the the living landscape is called the living landscape because it is continually updated. Um, and as you know, people's programs expand and change, so we are trying to maintain this as a real window into what's happening in the reuse landscape right now in doing all of that work, we continually asked ourselves what's needed to really get to scale. Um, so, so, so much of what is in the database is teeny tiny. Um, and we just know there's so much urgency. But it is a system challenge. And so having talked to many entrepreneurs in the space, having talked to corporates in the space, you know, having talked to a lot of folks for this reuse landscape work, the idea that emerged for us was it's really hard to pilot reuse, you cannot achieve any of the benefits of reuse unless the full system is in place, unless you have the full ecosystem to support the reuse program and. Right now, it's just too hard for startups to, they can't accomplish that on their own. Um, there's also a real system design challenge here, which is we need these systems to be efficient enough to deliver, e- to, to be economical, you know, to be affordable for everyone to use and participate in and to deliver environmental benefits. If something is you know, too piecemeal or too inefficient, it's not gonna uh, pencil out in the LCA. It's not gonna be better than disposable. So there's a lot of coordination needed. Um, what Perpetual is focused on doing is creating an ecosystem at scale, and at scale meaning big enough and immersive enough that you get the behavioral benefits. It feels, it feels easy and convenient and it becomes the social norm. You get those economic benefits. It's at at a significant enough scale that the economics work, um, the environmental impacts work out, and it becomes um just part of the fabric of daily life and so for perpetual the starting point for us is foodware because packaging is has a lot of um, performance requirements and it has to move around a lot generally you know a lot of food and beverage that we consume that's in a package came from outside of the place where we live so the idea with perpetual is we focus on foodware meaning any I, any item of packaging that where the food or drink is placed into it within the boundaries of the system, which is a small city, um, so so that those packages just have to circulate within the city. They don't have to go anywhere else, and they can just be continually used and reused within that that um, program boundary. Which is, in our case, we thought, well, a lot of this stuff is being piloted in big cities because you know people think, oh, I can get a high volume if I capture a very small percentage of a city, and that's not wrong. Um, But when we thought about how do you create that comprehensive and immersive ecosystem of a reusable program where you have collection bins on, you know, on every corner, maybe not every corner, but you, you have the feeling of collection bins on every corner or, you know, pervasive. um, And you have, you know, every restaurant offering reuse as an option that felt to us like a really valuable experience to give people and a really valuable way to study reuse at scale. And so our laboratory for this work is small US cities. We're working with four small cities between 50 and 100,000 people, um, to create that immersive experience. And that's, that's our, sort of our big idea. Um, but if we start in a place like Galveston, Texas, it's manageable, it's not super huge. It's not, there's not a ton of people that live there. They do get a ton of visitors. So that's, you know, definitely a system design challenge to think through as well. Um, it, it's, it's something we can do. It's, it's manageable, it's doable. And we think it will have just tremendous value in, Moving the conversation forward on reuse and providing a way to study how reuse works um, across a whole range of different things in a way that's never been possible um, in this kind of system before. And the last thing I want to say about that is a big part of how we are thinking about this is making sure that everyone is involved in the system design. So we're not leaving it up to individual startups who, um have a million things to worry about and need to survive and make money, uh, to sort of figure out how the system can work, but rather we're, we're taking the time to go through a community development and design process where we bring in local business owners, like, you know, local restaurant owners local you know, hotel operators. We have, we bring in corporates because they, we want them to participate in the system and we need the system to work for them too. So they're part of the conversation too. We have local, you know, city government, we have county government, and then, you know, perhaps most importantly we have community members you know we make sure that representatives from community uh, from disadvantaged communities are present to represent you know well how will this work for all the different people that live in a city We want to make sure that any reuse system works for everyone that's our mantra reuse is for everyone and that it is something that is equitable, accessible, inclusive, um, and that you know really, Brings the system to people in a way that the people that works for everyone.
0: That's a really important aspect. I think that inclusivity um, is really critical, and appreciate your thoughtfulness on that. We talked a
1: little earlier, Ellie, about our our recent field work together, which was in Galveston. So our team at UGA was there as a kind of precursor to your work there with perpetual conducting our circularity assessment protocol, which we call CAP for short. Um, And with CAP, we're looking at plastic in a really holistic way in a community context. So everything from input of consumer products, how those products are designed, the collection of materials, community stakeholder interviews, and ultimately leakage of litter into the environment. and as part of that, so while we were conducting litter surveys, you spoke with eighty-something restaurants in Galveston about reuse. Could you talk a little bit about some of the sentiments that you heard? Absolutely. Um, I
2: did speak to many, many restaurants <laughs> when I was in Galveston for a week, um, and what I'm struck by in, in those conversations, and and it's not true only there, but in just many of the conversations we have about reuse, is that people At the beginning of the conversation, people get an idea in their head of what they think you're talking about, and it's usually not. It's usually wrong. People usually have an initial misunderstanding of what reuse is. We maybe think – we have preconceived ideas about what reuse will look like or will feel like. And interestingly, most people associate it with – like bad feelings Um, at least initially they associate it with like the guilt of forgetting their reusable mug or their reusable bags or they think oh but i'm gonna have to like drive all the way It, it sounds hard and it sounds sort of like a burden um is how people i think that's the emotional reality people tend to start the conversation with but when we talk about the model that we imagine um people usually really like it. And so the the model that we talk about in the context of what a reusable foodware program could look like, for example, in Galveston, Texas, is that you have an, an entity, like a business, um, that is a reuse service provider. And that is the entity that makes it all work very seamlessly. When a customer receives a reusable item, We hope that they'll have a, you know, they'll be delighted by that experience, and and then because the infrastructure is fully in place, it's very easy for them. It's just as easy to drop it in a reuse collection bin as it would have been to drop it in a garbage can or a recycling bin. Um, And then the service provider picks everything up from the bins, gets them washed, and redistributes them to the restaurants. And the reuse service provider makes their money from those per use fees. So if the restaurant is paying five cents per use for cups or takeout containers, um, then that. At, at significant enough volume, covers the cost of operating the whole system. So, um, that model seems really appealing, actually, to to many people once they understand that that's how it would work.
1: Mm-hmm. I got to be part of some of those conversations where we were sitting down with businesses and, and watching them kind of change their perspective as you explained the the vision for for reuse in Galveston. I think you Perpetual is being so thoughtful about how you guys are approaching this in terms of being really inclusive and trying to make this system work for everybody.
0: So we've touched on a little bit of... Uh... Of, of life, work-life balance, or it's just life, uh, honestly. And I know Ellie, uh, you and I have some pretty similar home situations. We balance being a wife and a mom and all that goes with that. And um, for me, one of the hardest parts are mornings, getting the kids stuffed together, getting them out the door, and they're even already 11 and 14, but um, it's still hard. So I'm wondering if you can describe a bit more sort of about your daily life. What are your favorite parts or what is something that's hard? And um, what is something that you do to regenerate your energy? You do lots of, you know, lots of different things. And so how do you have enough energy for all, all of those things that you're doing?
2: I love that question because it's so important. Um, I am very much kind of an all or nothing person. So I, I struggle with balance um, personally um uh, you know i i i'm lucky to love the work that i do so um sometimes doing work is actually you know the thing that gives me great joy every day um but not always i rely on you know i spend so much time in my head um working so i i try to find ways to be in my body um when i'm trying to rejuvenate whether that's doing yoga going for walks um you know, other types of exercise, being in nature, you know, I think that's the the thing that really helps me stay grounded and healthy is just balancing, spending a lot of time at my laptop, thinking, typing, um, and then just being outdoors and, you know, getting to, getting to live in my body a bit. And of course, spending time with my family um, is, you know, so much fun. So um, really, really love it. my boys right now are 11, uh, 11 and almost 13. So very similar ages to your boys and they're just so much fun right now. So they bring me great joy. My work brings me great joy. I could use many more hours in the day if I could get them. But, um, but I, yeah, I do try to find the balance here and there. I, I find my experience of work, maybe it's consulting, maybe it's just work has been, there's a bit of a, it's lumpy. You have, period, you kind of crunch periods, and then you have, you know, times when things are more relaxed. And so I definitely try to take advantage of, I can't help but drive really hard during the crunch periods because I'm very committed to, to, you know, giving things my all, but then when things are, are, are lightened up, I am pretty good about taking that time and rejuvenating and taking naps during the day and cooking a nice dinner and, you know, doing the things that, that feel, um, humanizing and, and kind of help, help me recover from the intensity of work.
1: I talked a bit at the beginning of the episode about trying to find new balance after getting married and buying a house last year, which is definitely something I'm, I'm also still trying to get right. Um, what advice or thoughts do you have for people trying to balance these various priorities as we go through life changes and evolutions?
2: My husband and I, many when we first got married, um, we talked about how, I mean, it was, it was sort of ingest, but maybe not, about how retirement may not exist for our generation. That just may not be a thing that we get to do. Uh, so we committed to a little bit of retirement. We used to say every day. That was before we had kids. Now it's like a little bit of retirement every month, maybe every year. But I think we really do try to take time away um, from time to time. Um, and we call it our you know, retirement <laughs> because who knows if we'll ever actually get to retire. Um, based on all the many things that are complicated in our society about what enables retirement and, and even if retirement is a good idea. So, but we love the idea of a little bit of retirement um, throughout life as opposed to putting it all at the end of life when maybe it's harder to enjoy it all. So that, that would be my one piece of advice is find, find moments of retirement um, you know, every so often so that you're not saving all these things you want to do for later because you know, life is now and um, who knows what will
1: happen later. Yeah, I love that concept.
0: For our our final thought, um, Ellie, so part of the reason we bring guests on to hear different perspectives um, and we want, you know, systems to change. We talked about system change at the beginning in a just and equitable way. Um, we really need to have representative perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to every guest based upon, you know, your field of work and perspectives. So in terms of that, what voice would you say is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And then the second part to that question is, how do we make that happen?
2: I love this question, Jenna, and thank you for being so thoughtful and providing this platform for people because I think it's just so... I have benefited so much in my career from hearing from different people. I've learned so much, and so, and I agree that um, there are a lot of voices that we are not hearing enough of um, in this space and, and in general. I'm really interested right now in how we can elevate the voices of of indigenous communities around the world. Um, I feel like there's like sound bites and anecdotes that pop up from time to time, but I'm really interested in how we can elevate and support. Indigenous people and Indigenous communities, and I, I would love for them to have the opportunity to play a bigger role in in developing and implementing
0: solutions. Uh, we will be posting links to many of the things that we discuss. There's all kinds of reports and papers that we reference, so those will be in the show show notes. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing more on this work into the future. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. And to all of our listeners, thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us on the AquaThread.